to hear him up there playing songs about essentially being haunted by the past while walking into the future, it lets you sort of know emotionally that there's going to be an other side, you know, yeah. that, that you will get through the thing that um, has, you know, this, all these things that have, that have so weighed us down this last year. And, and for many of us, myself, at least the last four years where you felt like, man, I don't, I don't know if like January, 2021, is that a real thing? Is it, or is it like Candyland? Like a thing that you think might be real, you hope is real, but you really have no chance of and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and joining me tonight is going to be a fun one. I have a podcaster, writer, Springsteen fan, and it just found out we are, we are members of the Mutual uh, Admiration Society of the Great Lawrence Block. So uh, Todd Goldberg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I did not know that this was a dream of mine yes. until you approached me about being on the show. And I went and I listened to like 75 episodes and okay. had... You're I exaggerating, had right? 95. Okay. And I had I had some serious arguments with some people. Yes. Some discussions I want to have. <laughs> I think Jay Armstrong might be wrong about a lot of things. Yes, that's great. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love the show. And... You know, the, the, the thing about writers is that all, we're all failed musicians or we all wish that we were musicians. Yes. So whenever a bunch of novelists get in a room together, we don't talk about writing books. We talk about Springsteen and Neil Young and yes. Jason Isbell and, you know, all, yeah. all of our singer songwriters that we love because, you know, we don't we don't have the body to stand up on stage. Right. <laughs> and we can't do anything in four minutes or less, I assure you. Well, I, I don't know if you've listened, but, you know, the writer Ron Martz joined me mm -hmm. and he talked about that um, Springsteen and Stephen King, his two, two his big influences on his writing. And uh, so I've, I, I, I have I I had a friend a, a guy who's a fan of my Doctor Who podcast said that I don't know if you do a Springsteen podcast as much as you do a podcast where you talk to interesting people and the host happens to love Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> uh, so, so I said I don't know, but I am so glad. Um, and <laughs> Todd, it's it is in some ways I guess embarrassing, but. Um, I am always searching, like if I've run into someone on Twitter that makes a comment about Bruce or music or darkness on the edge of town or, you know, um, or I can't, I can't believe that people are playing Born in the USA outside Trump's hospital room. Do <laughs> right. they not understand this song? I immediately like, hey, I do a Springsteen podcast. You want to join me? <laughs> you know, I have to say the one of the great enduring things about America is misunderstanding Born in the USA. Yes. Like yes. It's, there, if there's one thing that Americans can agree on, it's like Dolly Parton is a goddamn saint. Yes. And 
95% of people don't understand what Born in the USA is about, except for the 5% of 50-year-old white dudes who are going to tell you what yes. you misunderstood. You know, um, I, I'm sure you were watching Saturday Night Live mm -hmm. with me as we're recording this. This will probably come out in Jan January, but as we're recording this, it's the Wednesday after uh, the band was on Saturday Night Live. And I was, I was like, well, someone said they should just let him play the whole hour and a half. And I'm right. like, well, I don't disagree though. I think the Dolly Parton sketch and weekend <laughs> update was pretty damn funny. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, the, the thing about Springsteen on Saturday night live. Um, well, I mean, there's two things. One, it made me feel really good. You yes. know, like after, after everything that we have gone through in 2020, and now that this is going to air in 2021 people, we made it through. Yes. Oh my God, we right. <laughs> we made it. Like if this is actually airing, yes, we made we, it through. Yes, indeed. yes. <laughs> so to hear him up there playing songs about essentially being haunted by the past yes. while walking into the future, it lets you sort of know emotionally um, that there's going to be an other side, you know, yes. that, that you will get through the thing that um, has, you know, this all these things that have, that have, so weighed us down this last year and, and for many of us myself at least the last four years um where you felt like man i don't i don't know if like january 2021 is that a real thing is or is it like candy land like a thing that you think might be real you hope is real but you really have no chance of seeing it. <laughs> well i i've been very vocal todd that when we first started getting rumors there might be a new album, I, I consistently said, if we can get a new Springsteen album in October, a new president in November, um, maybe 2020 will not be the worst year ever. Uh, you know, um, and I realize I, I'm, I'm saying that with a little bit of tongue in cheek because um, not to make light of all the suffering and death we've had um but you know it's kind of like a little bit of ray of sunshine yeah and and it never fails um you know one of my podcast partners like he sounded a little ragged i'm like they haven't played together yeah. in four years it's it's okay you know it's all right and he's 71 exactly right <laughs> uh and then uh someone else um you know made a point that Oh, he's a hypocrite. He, he do as I say, not as I do. Look at him and little Steven sharing the mic. I'm like, okay, you know, they have been performing together <laughs> 40 years. And I, first off, they've been tested. There's all kinds of things. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. They just forgot <laughs> for yeah. a moment. It's I, okay. I, I feel like little Steven might have been in Bruce's quarantine, you know? Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> right. Particularly because they didn't have uh, the bassist there that night and had to have right. the replacement. Who, yeah. That dude, the, the replacement bassist who, like, greatest night of his life, right? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. like you're, you're, you're pulled from AAA and you're yeah. starting for Derek Jeter at yes. shortstop. <laughs> Not and, bad. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's, it's funny, right? Because uh, Gary did say on Twitter, like, it just wasn't worth it for right. him to travel for two songs. And right. uh, so, uh, so yes, it was very funny and very good. Um, so I, first off, we were already, you know, 10 minutes into this. Tell my audience a little bit about yourself. Give us your elevator speech. 
Oh gosh. Uh, Navy SEAL. No. <laughs> First Jewish Navy SEAL. Um, yes. <laughs> well, I'm I'm your garden variety, uh, you know, crime writer. So I've I've published. Gosh, uh, the I have a new book coming out in February called The Low Desert, and I think that's my my fifteenth or my sixteenth published book. Um, uh, I come from a family of writers. My brother is also a novelist, Lee Goldberg. Um, you know, I, I have made a career out of writing about bad guys. That, that's okay. what I do. I write about bad guys. Um, and my brother, interestingly enough, writes about good guys. Um, and I think if you were to meet us, clearly he's the bad guy and I'm the good guy. But that's, that's okay. for another that's podcast. Nice. All right, that's nice. <laughs> um, but I come from a family of writers. My, my mom um, was a journalist for many, many years. My dad was a, a TV news anchorman in the Bay Area where I grew up, um, the San Francisco Bay Area, that is. Uh, my sisters are artists and writers. My uncle's a writer. It, it's, you know, it's the family business. And crime writing specifically is um, my brother and my family business. Um, but in addition to that, um, I'm a professor. I started the graduate school in creative writing and writing for the performing arts at University of California, Riverside. Um, I host a long-running podcast with uh, TV actor, Writer Strong, and essayist Julia Pistel called literary disco that has been around since 2012, which was, you know, I, I think we recorded it on Cuneiform and mailed it to people. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, uh, I've made an entire career out of, uh, out of writing. It's been a, it's been a very um, cool way to have all of my dreams achieved. All I ever wanted to, well, not all I ever wanted to do. Most all I ever wanted to do was be a writer. If I had my druthers about it, I'd also play first base for the Oakland A's, and I'd do a little quarterbacking for the Raiders. Back of quarterback. Like, I don't want to get hit, but I can, you know, I'll, I'll tell Derek Carr how to read a cover, too, because he doesn't know how. I'll do any of that stuff. I'm happy to help. But, mm -hmm. you know, writing has always been something that, um, that I wanted to do. Music, though, um, is, is a huge passion of mine. Um, but I can't play, and I can't sing. Um, I mean, my wife could confirm that I really cannot sing. Right. Because I am just constantly walking around the house with noise-canceling headphones on, bellowing lyrics. And she's like, yeah, that's not, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, writing is the family business. And um, it, I have a, a, a friend named Tom Zoller who is a, um, a artist, um, has started writing. He's written some My Little Pony comics. He's done three or four comic series of his own where he'd written and drew. And like he talked about growing up, from the moment he could hold a crayon, that he knew the only thing he ever wanted to do was draw. I yeah. mean, that, there was no, like when he um, was going to college, um, you know, he, he wanted to go to the, Kubert school mm. it's like you know I, I have no interest in going to any other university this is all I want to do and I think it's kind of neat that you've just have always known you want to write yeah and you know the thing is is I was profoundly dyslexic as a child I didn't I didn't learn to read until I was um, over 10 years old um, okay I, I mean I was so dyslexic that I thought my name was Dot for a long time you know that I was a yeah. that was a 60 year old southern woman named Dot um, but the, the inability to read 
um, for so long. And, you know, when you're, if you can't read until you're 10 years old, you, you, you feel like you're dumb, you know? And sure, I, I absolutely. Did. I absolutely felt like I was dumb and, you know, was picked on and bullied and all that stuff because I was in the special classes, you know, I was, I was doing all that stuff um, that didn't make me cool for sure. But, and also I didn't feel cool cause I couldn't read. Um, yeah. But this was the 1970s and then the early 1980s. And by 1981, you know, I, I was in all these special classes in, at, at Berkeley and Stanford that my mom had found that were really at the sort of the forefront of, of teaching kids how to deal with their dyslexia. And by the time I could read, like my creative mind was already intact. Like I, I, would, I would set up my bed with all of my Star Wars action figures. And I would have, you know, I'd have like a hundred, you know, action figures and army men and all that crap. And I would have these complex stories about their lives going on silently in my head, laid out across my bed. And so even before I could read and before I could write, I had narrative. And that's probably because I was read to a lot as a child. I watched a lot of TV, as we all did. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of studies that talk about how dyslexics view the world and how dyslexics understand narrative structure from a very young age, because they have to in order to make sense of the world, to make sense of the chaos of story, basically. Um, and so once I was able to read, man, it, it took off. I was writing stories almost immediately um, from, from that point on. Um, and by the time my first book came out in uh, 2000, my first book was a, a novel um, called uh, Fake Liar Cheat. Uh, you know, I'd already published, you know, 50 or 60 stories and a bunch of essays and stuff. And I was only 29. But I, I felt then that, um, that I was in a race to make up for those years where I couldn't read and I couldn't write. And um, I, I've never viewed writing as a, as a chore. I view it as a joy because I, I know what it means to not have it, you know. And I, I think that changes my point of view as a writer. I think it also changes my point of view as a teacher of writing. Like what yeah. we have is a gift, this thing that we do. And not everybody, not everybody has that gift. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. That's well said, and uh, I was lucky. Um, I, I learned to read fairly early. I don't re- like not before kindergarten or anything. I, I can vaguely remember, you know, going through the C Jane, you know, C spot right. <laughs> kind of books. But um, I always was a quick. Once I learned to read, I was very quick, and I and I grew up reading tons of comic books, mm-hmm. and and like you know. My um, my mom to this day says that, um, you know, Jesse would spend his last dollar on buying a book for a kid because, <laughs> you know, he just read books so much as a kid. Right. So um, I, I had that passion and um, I, I, w- I want to spend a little more time talking about writing, but um, I, my Bruce fans are going, OK, Jesse, enough of the writing. Let's talk about <laughs> it. So, so you grew up in California, Todd. Was mm-hmm. it? Was your family musical? Did were, were there a lot of music fans there? No, you know, so my older brother, Lee, um, just has the worst taste in music. All he listens to are TV soundtracks. And so he was crap for me okay. growing up. Like right. he, he wasn't able to deliver anything. A lot of Mike me. Post and... Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Like literally Mike Post. Okay. Um just believe it or not i'm yes. walking on air just unimaginably bad taste <laughs> okay um and then i had i have two older sisters as well and you know they were a lot of a lot of sean cassidy a lot of rick springfield a lot of um a lot of crystal gale was being sure. played in the house um my mom um my mom was a big band fan and it's funny a, a lot of times when i when i've listened to your show people talk about their parents being big band fans but my mom actually dated Artie Shaw oh, for a number of years. So she wasn't just a fan. Yeah. <laughs> she, she really got into it, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but music was not huge for them, um, but it was for me. And, you know, in the Bay Area at the time, there's some great classic rock or what's now classic rock stations, KFRC, KFOG, um, The Quake, which was a, a modern rock station. Um, and so pretty early on, I started to, to listen to a lot of music. I can remember um, my actually the one the one cool thing about my brother is he had um, he's nine years older than me. And he had um, he got the first Ramones record. Like, I don't know how he probably stole it or okay. got it from from Columbia House or something. And he didn't like it. And I was into it like he was playing it. And I'd sit outside his door like he'd go from ELO to the Ramones and I'd be like, turn off that ELO. Let's hear some more of the Ramones. And I was like, this, oh, I really like this, you know, beat on the brat. And my brother's like, you like this here? You can have this record. And so I would listen to that first Ramones record over and over and over again. I was like nine years old. Um, but, you know, I, my, my musical taste when I was very young, you know, it was just whatever top 40 was on the radio. And then by the time I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, I was, it was the 80s. So I was big into new wave and punk. Mm-hmm. Um, like those were my favorites. And in the Bay Area, you got to see lots of shows. Um, 
but also because I had an older sister, I, I ended up seeing Rick Springfield and Corey Hart a lot. Sure. <laughs> so I can I can sing you any song from the Rick Springfield catalog if you like, including "She Called Me Bruce." Um, but yeah, I, I was I was always into sort of modern rock at the time, and I I tell you, I know exactly when I got into Bruce, which okay. is um, when "Dancing in the Dark" came out. Um, but I had to pretend that I wasn't into it. You know, it came out in 84. I was 13. Um, I was walking around school with a Bauhaus shirt on, as though I'd ever listened to Bauhaus before, but yes. I had the shirt. <laughs> um, you know, I was I was deep into the Thompson Twins and, you know, Depeche Mode and all that stuff. And I just loved Dancing in the Dark. I just loved it, loved it. But I couldn't tell anyone, you know, because that was uncool. But I remember going to Record Factory in downtown Walnut Creek and getting it, getting that record um, and playing it constantly. Um, and I, I had heard Hungry Heart, I think, for sure before that, because I'd been hit a couple years before. So I knew that yeah. one. But I don't even really know, like when I heard or was aware of, you know, Born to Run or, or Darkness or any of that stuff, because Dancing in the Dark was that was my entry drug. Um, and then I worked backwards from that over the next, you know, 40 years. Well, um, it's always weird asking this question and it's even weirder when I ask for a writer, but can you articulate what about dancing in the dark spoke to you? Yeah, I can. Um, and of course it changes, you know, right. You know, what I knew then, um, is that I, I really liked that it was using, um, that overproduced keyboard sound of the 80s that was yes. prevalent in all the new waves I liked. You know, Bruce was smart or John Landau was smart and programmed it to sound like crappy 80s new wave. <laughs> so that was nice. Um, but I, I liked the, the desperation. You know, it's an unhappy song set to a, a happy beat. Yes. And when I was 13 years old, you know, I, I, in the 19 minutes you and I have been talking, you can probably tell I'm a fairly happy person yes uh, but when I was 13 years old you know I was a depressed kid wearing all black yeah walking around and you know but I was still feeling pretty happy most of the time but you know dealing with depression at the same time and dealing with issues of you know being the kid that was dumb for all those years yeah dancing in the dark for some reason even then I was like this is a song about creatively being being frustrated creatively yes and it's you know of course it's that line i'm, I'm sit, sick of sitting around here trying to write this book in the subsequent uh you know 30 odd years yes. that line sick of sitting around here trying to write this book really speaks to me yes i bet it does yes <laughs> but I, I i always like sad songs that um that feel happy when you're listening to them and, and you don't realize it until later i mean I don't know if you're if you're ever a fan of uh, David Berman from the Silver Jews. Um, he put out a, a record under the name Purple Mountains that came out uh, last year, and then he then he committed suicide. Mm. And um, the Purple Mountains record, it, man, every song is upbeat. You can dance to it. You can walk around your house and feel great. And it is a ten song suicide letter. Wow. I mean, it is the most depressing thing you've ever heard. And in a way, it's sort of analogous to how I write you know I often write about sad people doing terrible things and I try to put an entertaining spin on it um you know for all the books I've written on all these different characters I'm not ever really writing about a person who's happy I'm writing about a person who's trying to get happy 
and not in a sort of Danny Partridge sort of way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I shared with you that I picked up uh, Gangsterland uh, when I when I saw you tweet about Bruce and and I and you were nice and I'm like yeah I'll I'll be in your show I'm like okay well you say you're going to be in my show you get at least one book bought from me. I'm good you know uh, and and we we will talk about Brad Meltzer in a uh, a little bit but right he makes that joke I don't care what your politics if you send me a fan letter you you're in your president you get a free book right <laughs> is one of his jokes um, and I really enjoyed your book and and I tweeted you right like there there's two main characters of the book and um i'm going to do this injustice but basically um a mafia hitman due to circumstances um has to go hide and he ends up being a jewish rabbi in las vegas and the other character is the fbi guy that's searching for him and i said i don't know which guy i'm supposed to like because to a certain degree um Sal, who is the hitman, is almost on a almost on a quest for redemption. Right. You know, the way you're writing it. And the FBI guy maybe is willing to do anything he can, no matter how scrupulous or not, to kind of right a wrong that happened. And I don't want to start too much story. So I was both feeling the thing and you said, well, you'll figure it out. And I did <laughs> uh, because of the book. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to the second book in that, you know, two set. Um, so I, I like the idea that your characters are complex and there is, um, and I, I think that, in really good TV shows or movies or literature, your good guy isn't necessarily good and your bad guy isn't necessarily bad is what right. makes something good. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're leaving out a, a very important part of the book for the for the listeners of your show, which is that the actual plot of this book hinges on Bruce Springsteen. That, there yes. is, that in by the end of the book, knowledge of Bruce Springsteen is very, very important. Yes, there is. We won't, re yes, we won't reveal that, but... No, there is. That is a very... Is. Yeah, and uh, it is very interesting. The character quotes him, and, and it's inter it, it's really well done. Um, I, I liked it a lot, and I'm... It, you know, it's cool. Um, so... I'm going to go back to Bruce for a minute mm -hmm. and I promise we're going to get back to writing too. Um, so you, you, you said you've got dancing in the dark. So you've got the born in the USA. Right. Um, I assume CD. It, it, no, it, this was, this was 1984. Cassette. So, so cassette. Yeah. I had the cassette. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I might've had the record. Yes. I might've had the record. Mm -hmm. Either I did or my sister did because I can, all of a sudden I can see myself sitting on the floor looking at the picture while listening to it. Yeah. Do you, and by the way, you, your description about him trying to find himself, I, last week I talked to a guy who is a massive Bee Gees fan. Mm -hmm. It was a we, we talked an hour and a half and he is, he is actually trying to do a Springsteen and I documentary except Bee Gees and I. And, oh, that'd be good. But yeah, I, I just it was, watched that documentary two nights yes, ago. Yes. And yeah. And and we, I thought about that. I've never put that connection for, but um, the John Travolta character in Saturday Night Fever 
could be singing Dancing in the Dark. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, the, I think the thing about the Born in the USA album as an as an entry drug um, is it it's sort of like a, a greatest hits record of everything that's come before it too. Like you get a taste. Yeah. Like if you like the anthems on Born in the USA, well, you're gonna like Born to Run, right? Yes. If you like My Hometown, you're gonna like Darkness on the Edge of Town. You know, what, whatever it might be. Um, yeah. If you hate. Uh, what song do I hate? I don't really like Darlington County on that song. So if you hate Darlington County, you might hate, you know, something else. Candy's Room. I don't right. know. Um, and so, you know, like once I got hooked on it and when, once uh, I started to really listen to the lyrics and pay attention to the characters in it. And this is this is the important thing for me is like, I, I really like a story song. You know, I really like a narrative driven song. This is why I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of Jason Isbell is that, you know, I, and I believe that they are, you know, they're conjoined twins separated by 35 years or so. Absolutely. Uh, um, is, you know, every story that, or every song that he writes, there there's a narrative and maybe it reveals something about the author also, but it's also somehow applicable to your own life. Um, and so the thing that really sealed the deal for me on um, I'm Born in the USA was actually I'm on Fire. Um, a very simple song, a very creepy song. A, sort of a crime novel of a song like this yes. like who's this dude right. why is he feeling this way you know it's a whole vibe and what i remember really specifically is that song made me want to write and this is an interesting thing for me is like a lot of times I, i'm constantly playing music when i'm working um but even then like a song would turn on something emotional in my head and make me want to go explore that thing and for a long long time I had this desire, like, man, I want to write a book that's like a Springsteen album, you know, like, that's what I want. I want that vibe, whatever that thing is. And of course, that vibe is different for every single person. That vibe is that thing that happens inside of you. And it's, you know, it's filled by your experiences and your emotions and your traumas and passions and all that stuff. Um, but like, that was a thought that was like, oh, I want people to feel this way when they're when they're reading the book. And interestingly enough, you know, when I wrote... Um, when I wrote Gangsterland, um, with, and I wrote that in 2012 and it came out in 2014, I was sort of at a career crossroads. And I saw the um, that documentary, I think it must have been on HBO, something like that, where it's the making of Darkness on the Edge of Town. And Bruce is talking about, you know, how Born to Run was his shot. You know, like he was swinging right. for the fences with it. And um, I remember thinking man, I'm going to do that. I'm going to swing for the fences. I'm going to take my shot. Like I was already deep into my career. Right. You know, I had, I'd already published eight, nine books at that point. And I, and I hadn't broken big, you know, I, I had a good career, but I hadn't broken big. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to take my shot. I'm going to write my born to run. And it's going to be about this hitman rabbi. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at the front page of, um, of the book, if you look at the dedication to my wife, whose name is Wendy. And so therefore I was bound to be a Bruce Springsteen fan. Yes. You know, it's a, it's a quote from born to run, you know, and someday girl, we're going to make it, you know, and that was my shot. And so th from dancing in the dark all the way through, like those records ended up inspiring me to this other, this thing in my career. And it, it seems silly to say it, but Bruce Springsteen was an influence on this choice I made to write this book. And that's why he plays such a pivotal role in the novel itself. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting. Um, 
you may have heard this because you were nice enough to say you've listened to a couple of other podcasts with me, but um, I feel like Western Stars is uh, could be a collection of Elmer Leonard short stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it has that feel. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and it, so I, I, I appreciate the idea that in, in his music is very, it, it is very visual, right? It, he does create characters mm-hmm. and they're um, we, my, my buddy Sam and I talked about that often the women in his songs have a past. Right. We often we'll talk about, you know, we'll, we'll like, um, you know, we'll drop your kids off at your mom. And I realize that's not his uh, song, but he'll talk about um, like in glory days after mm-hmm. she puts the kids to bed, you know, right. there will be this. Um, so as you're going through, uh, are you, are you listening to the other albums? Are you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I had, um, and this is probably true for a lot of people like, you know, so from 13 to 18, I probably wasn't listening to it. You know, I wasn't right. getting obsessed. Right. Because I was too busy listening to the replacements, you know? Right. Um, but I, I was working in record stores. I always worked in record stores my entire um, you know, shiftless life. I worked in record stores. Okay. Um, and so I was getting into all the old stuff and listening to it. And my uncle, um, who's a writer, but before he was a writer, he was uh, a big DJ in Seattle. Um, okay. Like he was the, like he was the Howard Stern of Seattle in the sixties and seventies. His name is uh, Burl Bear. And I remember we had gone fishing together up in uh, Spokane and he was like, well, what are you listening to right now? And this was, I was probably 16 or 17 at the time. And I was getting into, um, you know, I was, I'd moved from British goth to, you know, American punk or, um, you know, replacements type stuff. And so I was like, oh, I'm into the replacements. I'm listening to REM, um, you know, I'm, I'm Husker Du, all these bands. And he's like, everything that you think that they're doing that's new comes from one guy. And that one guy is Bruce Springsteen. Like if you if you think Paul Westerberg is talking about the working man and the middle class, you got to go listen to Born to Run, not just the song, listen to the whole album. Go listen to Darkness. Go listen to Nebraska specifically. And so I remember, like when I was 17 years old, um, going and getting Darkness on the Edge of Town and listening to that because I liked the title. Basically, I I was like, that's a cool title listening to that whole record and being completely blown away and also recognizing like, Oh yeah, like this is a very clear aesthetic line from darkness on the edge of town to, um, you know, soul asylum or whatever. Right. Um, And, you know, I was also into like Jane's addiction and and bands like that as well. Um, But so then going from darkness and then, and then um, getting into the river and it was probably Gosh, I was probably 20, 21 when I started obsessively listening to the river, like okay. to the point where people were like, and not just the record, like specifically the song, like over and over and over and over again, trying to divine what I do not know. Um, and so it, it was sort of a steady uh, indoctrination. And then by the time I was about 25 so I'm, I'm 49 now just to give you a, a timeline by the time I was 25 my lovely wife uh, who at the time was my lovely girlfriend um like you know like all we played in the house was Springsteen 
and Neil Young's Harvest Moon record. Like that was like, somehow that became the soundtrack in our house as I was, you know, as as we had just moved in with each other. And I don't know why, and I don't know how, but you know, a song like Brilliant Disguise became a song that we both loved. And it's not really a song that young lovers should have in common, but just like Bruce says, you know, it's a song that changes in time depending upon who you hear it with and who you sing it with. Um, But, like that and then it became that era you know the the late 1990s mid mid to late 1990s i really got into tunnel of love like when when people weren't into tunnel of love i was deep into tunnel of love okay sure um and i really liked you know lucky town and human touch and i I, and like some of those songs on those records are hard to hear because they have the bad late 90s production um but by by that point it became my soundtrack for writing. You know, I was, I was okay. starting my career and it was just always on the background. And then I just became an, a, a, just a total obsessive. You know, I just, is, I just lost it. <laughs> you, is there one moment where you kind of tipped over or was it just a, a series of just listening and all of a sudden you've, you've become this passionate fan? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think probably there comes a point where you stop caring what other people think, you know? Right. And so when I was into punk music and all that stuff, like it wasn't cool for me to be like, hey, did, did you guys, did you, did you guys listen to Darkest on the Edge of Town? Did you guys listen to The River? Like, no, yeah. we didn't. We were at the Suicidal Tendency show. Right. <laughs> and so once you stop caring what anyone thinks about your musical taste, then it became yeah. a lot easier. And then it turned out that all my friends were into it at the same time too. Okay. So probably, you know, probably in my mid twenties, so probably 25, 26, you know, when I was living with my girlfriend who had become my wife and, you know, you start to, you start to hear different things in the songs. You start to want different things. I was less, you know, I was less interested in gangster rap at that point um, and more interested in, you know, a person talking about the feelings that I had. And this is the interesting thing about, about sort of the evolution of, of fandom for Bruce Springsteen. First, you like him for the anthems, and then you like him for how he's able to talk about, you know, the trauma and the human experience. And so, of course, different songs hit at different times. Um, now, that being said, Wrecking Ball is always terrible. But um, <laughs> but there, there's always going, there, there, you find something new depending upon when you're looking for it. Um, so I would say, you know, mid to late twenties is when I really became an obsessive. Um, and you know, I've, I've waxed and waned some in the intervening years, you know, but it really kicked up big again after, or when the rising came out. Right. Um, you know, because there'd been that lull, you know, obviously inside yes. to listen to all the old stuff and the rising kicked my ass, man. I didn't expect it. I didn't expect yeah. that it would make me feel the way that it did. I didn't expect the artistry to be where it was. I didn't expect the the artistic choices that he made from, you know, the, the um, Middle Eastern influence in some of the songs, like all the sure. stuff, like he, he was pulling it all together again for the first time. And you really felt, um, you, for me, like that was a record where I, I was like, oh yeah, he, it doesn't matter that he's a, a multimillionaire rock star. He's feeling the same sort of existential things that we all are at this point. Yeah. Um, I had, um, I had a guest, Daniel, I believe is his name, talked about, and and I've, I've repeated this on multiple episodes, he said he was at the reunion tour, you know, in 99, mm-hmm. and he's, 
he said in his mind, this is it. This is the peak of my Springsteen fandom. Right. Like they may tour in the future. They'll, they'll get together every once in a while, but this is as good as it's ever going to get. And he said, if he could, he, there was no way he could picture the next 20 years Yeah. of, of, you know, rising the Seeger sessions, mm. you know, Obviously, it doesn't sound like you like Wrecking Ball, but Wrecking Ball, <laughs> you know, Western Stars, the film, Broadway, and now Letter to You. Yeah. Like, oh, my goodness. How, how where, you know, what a second half of a career or. It's or, amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And I mean, clearly there's some duds, you know, like yeah. we, we, we can all recognize that not every song is great, but that's true for anyone. Like, you know. Yeah. And I think the thing that um, what the current record shows um, is that when he's focused and feeling something deep and emotional and has something important to say, man, it's going to come out and you're going to feel it and it's going to arrive with some with some power. Um, I I just don't get that vibe when he's singing about the destruction of the Meadowlands. (laughs) And and yeah, and, and I think because. Um, it was on uh, three years ago. I, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. I'm oh my fine. gosh! But that was on my playlist. Mm-hmm. The whole "Give me your best shot," right? See what you got from that, you know, persona. Um, John, um, I, what I find interesting, right, is um, we Joyce Millman is a um, she's done TV writing and um, a critic and and when Western stars came out, she wrote a really beautiful column about why it wasn't the album she wanted. Mm -hmm. And we actually, I had her on the podcast and she explained that she wanted an angry, she wanted a magic for the Trump administration. And she just wrote this beautiful column about maybe Bruce knew better than I did because I like the idea and letter to you. There's a few comments about, Trump, but he didn't go overboard. It's just focusing on this. Right. Um, you know, the only time I've gotten angry, because I have no problem if someone says, um, you know, they didn't like Western stars, they just didn't get it, or right. I didn't get the Seeger sessions, or I didn't like Devils and Dust, or I didn't like Wrecking Ball, you know, I didn't like the Irish Tin, or whatever. The only time I got mad is someone on Facebook on Sunday posted that we should all admit that, you know, letter to you is not very good. He doesn't have his voice anymore. Oh God. And tonight we ride. And, 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 <laughs> and he said, and he, he needs to stop diluting his legacy. Oh God. And I, you know, went, okay, it's one thing if you don't like the album, but there is nothing this man can do to delete his legacy. No, he has <laughs> no. nothing to prove. Nothing. nothing, nothing. I mean, I, he would have to actually kill a priest in yes. front of children, and then yeah. even still, would be like, "Yeah, but the, the seventy-one years before <laughs> that were pretty great." <laughs> well, right, like, like I'm yeah, thinking. I like, mean, yeah, uh, like. Bill Cosby destroys his legacy, right? Like Bill Cosby destroyed his (laughs) legacy, right? But there are people to this day that despite all the Michael Jackson, you know, they look at his music and he's like, you can't do that. So that's amazing. All right. One of the things I like to preface, Todd, is 
Uh, the amount of times you've seen Bruce is not a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are. But for the record, do you know how many times you've seen him? I do. I know the exact number. Okay. Zero. Wow. I've never seen him live. Wow. I know. I don't know how. I was so I, I was on my own Facebook page. I was talking to people and saying, "Hey, I'm going to do this thing." And we were talking about Bruce Springsteen, and everyone was like, "Well, gosh, how many times have you seen him? 20, 30 times?" And I was like, "I've never seen him," which is strange because when I like a band, I yeah. I see them, I see them a lot, and I yeah. don't know how I've never seen Springsteen. Like he came through um, LA, he comes to LA for every tour. He played yeah. 20 nights on the River Tour, whatever <laughs> <Yeah>. it was. <laughs> and for some reason, I have never seen him. And I don't know how this has happened. And it feels strange. Like, like sitting right here next to me, I've got the signed copy of the memoir. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm surrounded by paraphernalia and I have no idea how it is that I've never seen him live. Has it become a superstitious or you know, just, it just, it just, it just, it's just circumstances. Yeah. Like, well, I actually know like the last time he came through Southern California. Um, so I, so I run an MFA program at UC Riverside, as I mentioned, and the, we have a residency period, a 10 day residency period where all my students come to town and I, we teach for 10 days and like his 10 nights at the LA Coliseum or wherever it was were during those 10 days. And I was like, how can this be? How, how can this be? You know, I, like I've seen, I've seen the Rolling Stones. I've, I've seen, I've seen Neil Young. I've seen all the, I've seen all the biggest ones I ever wanted to yeah. see all the brand name bands. And then of course, all the tiny little ones, because where I live also, this is important. There's a great roadhouse called Pappy and Harriet's that holds maybe 150 people in it. And every touring band on earth, does a surprise show out there and so i get okay. to drive up into the desert and see you know someone awesome at pappy and harriet's um but i have never seen springsteen I, but i do have a good story about my brother not seeing springsteen okay please which, sure. is, <laughs> which is that my uncle who, who i mentioned before my uncle burl he was this big dj in seattle and my brother who's 10 years older than me um was staying with him up in seattle and my uncle had you know free tickets to go because he was going to come out and say, ladies and gentlemen, Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band, because he was the, the big DJ. And so he says to my brother, hey, do you want to come see Springsteen with me? And my brother says, no, there's a Woody Allen movie on TV I want to watch that night. And my uncle's like, you're going to stay home and watch a Woody Allen movie? Instead of going to see Bruce Springsteen? My brother's yes. like, yeah, I don't really know the songs. And my uncle was like, it doesn't matter if you don't know the songs. Right. And this was, you know, this was like 1979 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And now it's just this thing, like my brother, instead of going to see Springsteen, stayed home to watch, you know, Manhattan or something. <laughs> yeah. So at least I don't have that weighing me down, that I had the choice and was like, I'm going to stay home and watch Friends. Well, so it, it's not quite as good, but I had a guy a couple weeks ago and his episode hasn't come out yet but his his name's bud and he lives in alabama and it was a great conversation but he talked about that um he was going to school in auburn when bruce was touring and at the time he had long hair and he kind of looked like bruce oh, so he tells the story that he he pretended to be bruce at the student union <laughs> and actually signed 
autographs. And then later the student paper talked about it. Oh God. So, uh, so he's friends with the, the head of the student union that's putting on the show and he finds him and you know the day of the show and they're like oh come on back and so they come back and the band's all around and so he's getting to talk to him and Bruce finally comes and have you heard and Bruce said yeah I heard that that's pretty funny you kind of do look like me and there's give and take back and forth and it's really great And, and Bud says here is his great regret um they click and after the show they hey you got to come to the after show party and so uh I, I don't remember if it was bruce as he told the story but a couple of band members said hey you know why don't you ride with us we've got another couple of shows over the next three or four days you can go with us <laughs> and bud goes yeah i've got class oh my god <laughs> and he's like what was i thinking jesse was i thinking? wasn't that good of a student i mean oh I my was- god <laughs> oh my god so someone needs to find Bud and shake him. Poor Bud. Yeah. So Bud, I said, I said, I wonder if you can call now Barbara or somebody and go, hey, <laughs> like in 76, 77, he offered me. So like, can, can I take that up now? Oh, man. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's a horror. Um, that's a horror story, Jesse. <laughs> yes, it was. That's, that's great. Um, I. I want to talk for a minute. We, we mentioned before you recorded, um, there is a series of books that Lawrence Block did that Keller, it's about a hitman. And, and I don't, I mean, if you've never read the books, you, you're going to think this is weird, but he is the, he is the protagonist and he is the hero and you end up cheering for him, even mm-hmm. though he is a, um, contract killer. And, um, you know, Hit and Run is one of my favorite books where he ends up building a whole life in uh, New Orleans for himself. So you mentioned Lawrence Block is actually an influence. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to let you talk, is he was at a book signing here in Dallas. And it was a point where um, where uh, Scudder and Elaine, and she, it, I don't remember the book, but at the end of the book, Elaine basically tells Scudder that, hey, I love you and you're loving me as much as I want. I'm getting everything. And so Mm -hmm. I asked Mr. Block, I said, I think Elaine knows that, you know, Matt's cheating on her, but she doesn't care. And he said, I think that too, but I'm not sure yet. And I love, (laughs) I was like, I was like, that told me so much about writing, you know? Mm-hmm. So he truly is one of my favorite writers. Um, and just, I have, I have read, you know, the burglar books, the scutter books, everything. So please share how you got to be friends with your young adult. <laughs> you <know? laughs> well, the first thing you need to know is that all crime novelists know each other. Okay. Um, like it, it's a, it's a, it's a good club to be in. Because right. everyone everyone has good taste in whiskey, so that's a, that's yeah. a good part of it. Um, the, I mean, the honest, I mean, that's part of the honest fact is like we all have the same job, yeah, and so we end up um, running in some of the same circles. But so my fandom with with Lawrence Block goes back literally until I was, you know, to about the time I I heard Dancing in the Dark, you know, nineteen eighty three, yeah, nineteen eighty four. My brother had gone off to college, and he left me with two big bags of books. 
and it was Lawrence Block, and it was Donald Westlake, and it was Jim Thompson, and it was Ross McDonald, it was Robert Parker. It was sort of the history of American right. noir and detective fiction. And I had just learned to read, and those books, you know, they're pretty easy to read. It's not, you know, not a lot of complex metaphors <laughs> to I walked up and shot a guy in the head. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Robert Parker Spencer books are very, I mean, they are all dialogue. They are fun. All dialogue. You just, it, it, it is like eating potato chips. I just love. Yeah. yeah. And Robert, you know, Robert Parker was a huge influence on me too. I, I'm right now, if I turned my computer around, I could show you a, a photo of a teenage me and Robert Parker and him signing my copy of a Catskill Eagle, which I oh, keep on nice. my little corkboard. Um, but so, you know, I was reading those books as my young adult fiction. That was like, there weren't, John Green wasn't a thing, you know, in 1903. Yes, exactly. So if you wanted to read books, you were reading adult fiction or you're reading kids' books. And so I read all of those books and just inhaled them. And I've always loved the antihero. Antiheroes are my thing. Um, okay. And so, you know, Lawrence Block naturally appealed to me. His humor, the depth of his characterizations. So Lawrence Block, Elmore Leonard, Donald Westlake like that that's yeah. my that's my Mount Rushmore sure and so I always wanted to write about you know a, a, the well I wanted the challenge of how do you make a bad guy the hero like how do you yes. make a bad guy in such a way that readers will, will find empathy in them and so that was an idea that you know had gone in my head for for a very long time um and so over the years you know I I, I, I read you know probably 60 of his books you know just a sure. just an absolute ton of them and at the same time, my brother, who I mentioned, um, he started publishing books as well. And he and Lawrence Block became friends. And then he introduced Lawrence Block to me and we became friends as well. Um, what I remember most, though, like there was, there was a moment in time where I was like, how is this my life? Like, how, how am I having this experience? We were in Seattle for some sort of book conference. It was, I was there, my brother Lee was there and Lawrence Block was there. And Lee was like, hey, we should we should get some dinner. And Lawrence Block was like, oh, can can I come along? And I was like, get, can Lawrence Block come along? Yeah, Lawrence Block can come along. What the yeah. fuck? Oh, I almost swore. What That's the okay. F? Of course, yeah, exactly. Lawrence Block can yes. come along. And so like we're all, we're walking to dinner and we're just sort of talking about, you know, whatever it is we're talking about. And you know, it, it's like hearing Scudder talk. You know, yes. you're having a conversation yes. with Scudder yes. <laughs> as you're as you're walking to the fish place down at the water. And then we're sitting there at dinner and like, I'm not a shy person. I like, I'm, I can talk to anyone. Yeah. And my brother is like me on steroids. Yes. <laughs> so he also not a shy guy, yeah. but with terrible musical taste as, as noted before. So the three of us are at dinner and Lee and Lawrence Bach are talking. And I'm just, I'm just like staring at Lawrence Bach eating a steak. Mm -hmm. And my, and Lawrence gets up to go to the bathroom or something. And my brother's like, why aren't you talking? And I was like, because I'm 13 years old and Lawrence Block is at dinner with us. How on earth did this happen? Yes. This is absurd. This doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And he's like, well, look, you got to get over it because it's weird that you're just sitting there staring at the man. <laughs> he's like, you've published nine books and you're scared to talk to Lawrence Block. And I was like, I, like people didn't have to deal with like having Shakespeare show up after their play, you know, yes, to, talk exactly. about, yes. to talk about stuff. So that was that was a good moment. But so we became friends. And, and then last year, he contacted me. And he said, Hey, I'd love for you to write a short story for me for a book that I'm doing about um, uh, about colleges, I want to write, I want to put together an anthology about 
crime on college campuses, will you, will you write something? And so I wrote a short story for him called uh, Goon Number Four okay. about a uh, like a black ops special, um, you know, Navy SEAL type dude who retires and and goes to community college, and the transition is not a smooth one. Okay. <laughs> but but he's the goon in the back, like he's not the number one hit man. He's like the guy who holds the briefcase. Okay. And so I sent him the story, and I was really nervous. Like I was like, sure. oh God, like this is just like. Like, like that story does not exist if I hadn't spent 35 years of my life reading this man's books. Yes. And so I sent it off to him and I don't hear back from him for a couple of days. And I was like, okay, oh God, he hates it. Oh my God, he's right. going to he's gonna have someone contact me and tell me I'm not in the book and send yeah. back the money and all that stuff. And he wrote me back. He's like, this is one of the best short stories I've ever read. You should turn this into a novel. This is remarkable. And Jesse, I, I swear to God, I cried at my desk. I oh, cried. I, I cried at my desk. I was just like, don't look at Lawrence Buck likes me. He really likes me. Uh, it was just, it's just remarkable. Um, but this is this is the cool thing. Like when you're when you're in this business, we were all the people that were picked last at kickball. It doesn't matter yeah. what age. Yeah. <laughs> Every single crime writer was picked last at kickball, except for Greg Hurwitz. He's always okay. been physically fit. Um, and so we all speak the same sort of language of the loser. And, so, and Lawrence Block taught me that. What's funny is um, Harlan Coben was here in Dallas doing a several years ago, uh, but it was when Bruce was on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's doing a book signing and he does a reading and then he you know he's okay do we have any questions when my hand shoots up right away and he's like yes you in the back are you getting tickets to see bruce on broadway <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and and he starts laughing he goes that was not the first question i thought i was gonna get <laughs> yes i am working to get tickets i'm like okay thank you sir <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's a huge fan i mean yes all like there are of the crime writers that I know, I think the majority are Bruce Springsteen fans because, yes. you know, a song like, um, you know, uh, Across the Border, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a noir song. Every song on, on Devils and Dust is a noir yeah. song, you know. Well, Meeting Across the River, right? You yeah, like that? Meeting Across is, the River. Yeah, yeah, it's just amazing. There was that anthology that they did of all those crime yes, writers. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, that's yeah. very good. Um, so I do have to share with you, and then we're going to get back to Bruce. Um, I saw that you had co-written a book with Brad Meltzer. Yes. And um, I first found Brad when he was replacing Kevin Smith on Green Arrow. Mm -hmm. Had never heard of him before. Read that. Went, oh, I should look out this guy's books. Found his books and uh, liked them. And then every time he came to Dallas, I'd end up being the, the fat kid asking a comic book question, right? <laughs> and then uh, in... in we would always talk a few minutes on comics. And then one night he was, he was one, he was giving, he was selling t-shirts for some charity and I volunteered to sell the t-shirts. So it's to reach the point where now, you know, Brad remembers me. Right. And, um, and when I talked about like three years ago, when um, I had put on Twitter that I was fighting colon cancer, you know, he DM'd me and said, are you, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. So um, certainly not friends, but when he sees me at the book signing, he goes, okay, what's your question, Jesse? Right. <laughs> That's nice. So I'm like, please don't say he's a jerk. 
please no. don't please don't say he's a jerk because you know from my perspective he is just this wonderful guy brad um is like a brother to me yeah he is uh by the way i love joel's book he, oh thank you i appreciate it we had a lot of fun working on it um and we want to do more of them but we both have the champagne problem of having uh successful things that we're doing yes <laughs> um, we even have we have it all plotted out and everything yeah um so Brad is, um, what you see is what you get. I mean, yeah. the, the dude's a gem. Um, I love him like a brother. Um, you know, we don't get to talk as often as, as either of us would like, but when we do talk, it's like picking up the conversation five minutes before. As soon as I get done with this, I will text him because he will be awake. Yeah. Um, but you, here's what you need to know about Brad. He is everything that you imagine the biggest geek on earth could possibly be. Yes. Yes. <laughs> His, his obsessions are real and yeah. they are fanatical. And um, what he has done with his entire career is live out all of his childhood fantasies. Yeah. And if you're with him and he knows about your childhood fantasy, he's going to make it happen for you. He's like a, he's like a walking, talking, make a wish foundation. Uh, yeah. he's just a, he's a wonderful dude. I love him. I love his family. I love his wife. I love his kids. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, here's the thing. Brad Meltzer changed my life. Um, you know, when he approached me to uh, to work on the House of Secrets together, um, he was like, "I I need some help with with something, and you need some help with something." And it was true. Um, like I needed to learn how to write commercial fiction, and he wanted to understand character better. He didn't feel like he wrote character as well as he should or could. I remember him saying that in an interview. Of course, at that time, I did not know you, and I we we had not connected. But I, he said. Todd's really good at character, right? And, yeah. and I'm really good at plotting. And exactly. And and he really taught me how to plot and he taught me how to write commercial fiction. And I feel like I taught him how to do character. So that when the you know, when the escape artist came out, I was like, dude, you listened. Yes. <laughs> like, it, like you got it. You know, Zig is a great character, and you like you understand how to write an outlandish story centered on a real person and right. that was like that was the thing that I, that he knew that he needed help with and this tells you sort of a, a bit about the guy like he recognized he had a problem and he wasn't just gonna say eh i'm gonna james patterson i'm just gonna hire other people to write my books mm-hmm. when we when we wrote house of secrets up there on my wall um it was a true 100 partnership and you know we had to learn how to fight we had to learn how to disagree we had to learn how to um, tell the other person like, Hey man, that sentence sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's hard to do um, because we're both, you know, pretty, um, pretty type a with our own work. Yeah. And, and to have another person's fingers in it, like when it's not done yet, it's, it's an unusual experience. And um, it was harder than we thought it would be. Um, the reward was great. And, you know, I, I had always been a, a pretty good selling writer but the House of Secrets was huge. You know, it was a big, yeah. you know, huge bestseller. It was on the bestseller list for like, you know, six weeks or something. And it changed my life. And um, it, it opened my eyes to some other possibilities for stuff that I can do in the future. And he's the biggest cheerleader I've ever had. Um, if I needed bail money right now, he would probably give it to me before my brother would. <laughs> well, that's because you keep criticizing your brother's musical taste. <laughs> I now feel like I have to have him on the show. No, <laughs> no. He he wouldn't know a single, like, he'd be like, so what's your favorite Bruce Springsteen song? And he'd be like, Jesse's Girl. 
I really like Jesse's film. I really like uh, I like Summer of '69. That's another good one. And Pink Houses. I'm a big Pink Houses fan. There you go. <laughs> no, Brad. Brad's a gem. I, I can't wait to tell him that I met you. That's good. Um, and I will be crushed because yeah, I don't know who that guy is. is like Jesse, no, no, <laughs> no, don't know who that, that guy. <laughs> um. So I can't ask you my normal question is. Um, is there a song you're chasing on a live show? Because you would say all of them. <laughs> all of them, yeah. yeah. All of them, every single one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I listen to all the live records. I watch sure. all the YouTube videos. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I saw him sing Royals by Lord. Yes. Lord <laughs> exactly. Um, by the way, when I had the BG expert, I did have to talk about... Uh, you know him doing staying alive yeah that's not a good version of staying alive <laughs> that is you know the I, I will say um you know the the song that i wish i'd seen him play live yeah um is his cover of purple rain yeah. um you know i'm fascinated by that performance to be perfectly honest with you because it actually serves a sort of a larger national um purpose like it it is a moment of such profound public mourning that it exists as sort of a funeral you know like seeing bruce springsteen sing purple rain you're like oh well of of course he knows purple rain yeah of course he loved purple rain but it doesn't like it never would have entered your mind before that he that he had liked it and every band member is wearing purple yeah some shade of purple on some pearl clothing um and and then you hear afterwards like you know prince had said in an interview that you learn from the best like he would be backstage watching the Street band perform and and would be taking notes and um i guess in the same way um crime fiction writers right you know uh robert krauss or lawrence block mm-hmm. or you know whoever uh to a certain degree musicians or a small family too yeah right so um and there's um i know one of the things that once on twitter jason someone asked the question who's a musician that who did a big favor for you and jason mm-hmm. isbel replied bruce springsteen mm-hmm. and immediately okay we want to hear that story and he's like right. it's not, it, no i'm not going to tell that story right and you know um and i do i i the closest to a um a substance issue i have is fighting my calories and you know and, and being overweight but um it gets easier but it's never easy you know on right. a new album just spoke to me like that song has so much truth in it yeah 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 that i mean that new jason isbell album is is something and you know it actually pairs up really well with the new bruce record because they're both about being haunted you yes, know they're, they they're are. both about they're both about ghosts and and ghosts come in a lot of different varieties um and i you know i, I think emotional vulnerability is the thing that connects you to between art and and the purveyor of art is the thing that connects you know yeah and so that's why like the that purple rain moment when you when he plays purple rain you're like oh okay game game respects game we got that yeah oh he's gonna play it really 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 well yeah miles is gonna hit that that solo like no one's ever played it before 
like like there's two people that can play that one of them just died and the other one's playing it right now you know yeah um and you know to pay such profound respect and not be afraid of showing you know concrete human emotion in the simplest form possible which is to honor that person by you know using their art that's so that's so powerful and i think you know that's what bruce has it's what jason isbel has um but it's what great art does no matter what is it makes you feel like you're not alone in this world with whatever struggle that you have and and you know that that song that it gets easier but it's not easy you can you know he's talking about his sobriety you're thinking about it as it relates to your personal health i think about it as it relates to my personal health <laughs> i think about it as it relates to letting go of anger of something that yes. i've been pissed off about for 25 years like i'm gonna stop being mad at my mom i'm gonna stop being mad at my dad they're both dead i should have a good relationship with them now. right <laughs> you know whatever it might be exactly and, and it sometimes it takes art to be the thing that makes you make that decision and that's a that's a it's a powerful weight that artists bear but as a writer you know um particularly these last four years, you know, I do a lot of opinion writing. I write a lot of op-eds and essays and things like that for newspapers. Um, and I feel like it's important to do. Uh, and, you know, people, people say like, well, aren't you afraid you're going to alienate some portion of your audience? Well, my audience is not as important as my humanity or my yes. sense of empathy or, you know, what's right and what's wrong. And so yeah. if I get out and, you know, in front of um, an issue of anti-Semitism and write a, an essay in a major newspaper about it, I'm not cared if anti-Semites are going to buy my exactly. books. Like, right. Hey, go ahead. Keep your exactly. money. Um, but, you know, I believe artists have to stand up and speak for those that are unwilling or unable to talk for whatever reason. It could be emotional. It could be traumatic. It could be physical. Well, I, I I get a joke. I, I, I'm amused by people on Facebook or Twitter and other social media that will go to little Steven or who's oh, very yeah, active I on saw Twitter. That one, that one say, the other day was bad. Yeah, right, like, okay, you know, <laughs> this is why I'm not listening to you anymore because, you know, you guys, uh, you know, should keep your politics out of it. Right. And my first thought is, have you not listened to any of the music, right. <laughs> you know? Uh, and the idea that, because um, I'll, I'll share that, you know, I'm a huge comic book fan and, um, you know, I was young enough. Uh, I was, you know, that, you know, um, Lois and Clark was as close to, you know, we had not had a Superman right. show on TV. Right. And Dean Kane is kind of now very conservative and crazy. But he and I have interacted a couple of times on Twitter and he was always respectful to me, you know, and I don't. I don't disagree. I don't agree with his politics at all. And I'm like, I don't understand why you can think that way, but that doesn't take away from that cheesy. Like I had a friend like said, you know, his, his uh, Tom, I was talking about Tom Zoller's book, love and capes is like Lois and Clark, but not the sucky parts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, there, there is, you know, that, that fun. And I, I think, you sometimes have to you have to separate that i mean yeah if you can i mean yeah, it's sometimes it's hard to well like fortunately i you know scott Bayo isn't making any art that i want to consume exactly right <laughs> yes. but, but then you know like there's a new ryan adams record out and i'm like yeah i kind of want to hear it but I'm, I'm sort of against 
pedophiles. So yes, exactly. As, yeah. <laughs> as a general, as a general rule, I try not to give pedophiles my money. Exactly. So, Todd, you've shared Tunnel of Love, which I agree with you. Um, I, someone once told me on the podcast, you have to have your heartbroken or you have to have been through a relationship for a while to enjoy Tunnel of Love. Mm-hmm. You certainly have talked about Born in the USA, your gateway. Are there other albums or songs that you go back to oh, on a gosh. regular basis? So you know how Spotify tells you your your top song at the end of the year? Yeah. So I've had Spotify for five years or whatever. Every single year, the number somewhere between number song number one and song number five is Brilliant Disguise. Okay. I listen to Brilliant Disguise constantly (laughs) all different versions of it it's my absolute favorite song of his which is weird like i I don't know if a lot of people have brilliant disguise as their number one um but like i said you know it means different things at different times and i told you you know that there was that that time when you know my wife and i were just together we'd play it constantly yeah that um long walk home Uh i love that one play it constantly it's just an absolute huge favorite of mine um I really love the live version of Trapped. Yeah, that's a that's a favorite. Um, I, I blare that that's the that's the windows down in your driving yes. song. Um, I just love it. And you know, I live in the desert, so uh, I get to do a lot of top down. You know, wind whipping through my hair as I as I drive and and think about yeah. life. Um, gosh, I mean, there's so many. I love Youngstown. Um, Youngstown really makes me want to write. You know, that, that's another one that makes sure, you want to I could see that. get into it. Um, Darkness on the Edge of Town, um, that, you know, I can listen to that song over and over and over again. I can listen to The River 60, 70, 80 times in a row. Um, so I, I've, you know, I always ask the Mary question. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to throw you a curve and I will still ask you the Mary question. Do you think the couple in The River have a happy marriage? Well, my friend David is friends with Bruce's wife okay. or Bruce's sister rather. Okay. <laughs> so I know that they do. <laughs> right. Yes. I understand that. I understand that in the, the people that, that it's based on, but in, in the song itself, no, I think, yeah. no, <laughs> they okay. do not. No, you know, you know, that song is so powerful to me. That yeah. song, um, it both, I mean, the crescendo of it, you know, it's impossible not to be moved by it, but the crushing sadness of small town desperation yeah. and loss and hopelessness um, and young marriage. I can't imagine that it comes out well, you know, and very few relationships in a Bruce Springsteen song seem like they're the basis of a really great marriage. No, I, I get it. Yeah. Not, not a lot of them. Um, but the river itself, you know, like it, it feels to me, you know, that song reminds me of summer, you know, uh, mm-hmm. of those those long nights when you're young and everything seems possible and you're a little drunk yeah. and, um, and everything sort of already seems like a memory as it's happening, but you know that it's impermanent, that mm-hmm. this is not going to last. That song gives me that feeling. And so I play it when I'm trying to write stories like that. Okay. Um, there's a story in my new book that I played that song constantly as I was, as I was writing it. Um, and those relationships born out of summer lust rarely last very long. Um, but you want those kids to, to get out and find something better. Yeah. Um, but man, I, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to that song and asked myself, like, 
how at that age because he was what 26 when he wrote that song mm-hmm. like how did how did he have that ability at right. 26 years old to convey that kind of emotion like when when i was 26 i, I couldn't do anything right <laughs> i was like yes nothing i did nothing well at 26 <laughs> i get it yes there is that talent yeah uh, and so when I, when I read his memoir i was like well we're gonna get to the bottom of this yeah. we're gonna find out Actually, can I? I'll, I'll tell sure. you some a moment of narcissism. Not that you need any more from me, but so you know, I read I read the memoir, and I of course I loved it, and I got done with it, and I had a couple thoughts, but the big thought that I had was, well, you know what? I'm a better writer than Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, you know, as a writer, what do you think of the? Well, he's very talented. He needed a better editor. I love it. You know, I love it. But it also, it's a book that was written over the course of 20 years. And so he becomes a better writer the, the further in he gets into the book. Is I will tell you, I was a little worried because, and I say this with all love in my heart, if Bruce is listening to this, <laughs> sometimes he can be a very bad interview. Right, because he he seems self conscious about talking about himself. He seems to be better during this letter to you, like that the Apple interview. The guy I don't I didn't recognize the guy, but they there he's been on a couple podcasts. I I think he's done a good job. But so I was wondering if the book was going to be sort of mirandering the way, and and it wasn't. Yeah. Um, it it felt like. Um, it did feel like he was just telling parts of the story. Yeah. So. And, you know, I, I think, and I agree with you about him sometimes in interviews being like, I mean, he's, he's practiced, you know, he, he's been asked every single possible question you could ever ask him. Right. Um, but what the book does and what the Broadway show accomplished is it stopped you from asking certain questions of him anymore. Yes. And so he's revealed all these secrets. He's revealed the, his own you know, personal demons, you find out all about the therapy and all of that, all these things that, you know, maybe he wouldn't feel comfortable talking about because, you know, of the shame that he talks about in the book, having felt in the shame that he talks about um, in the Broadway show of, you know, his own success compared to his father's, all that stuff, all that, sh- all that shit we deal with, right? Like right. men are, men are stupid. You know, it, we're so much better if we just talk about the things that bother us, but we don't. Mm-hmm. Right. But he went and got the therapy and he wrote it all down and he told the story. And it, feel, it felt to me subsequent to that and, and why I feel Letter to You is a really great album is that he's unencumbered by the fear of his true self being known. It's known. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's out there. Yeah. So he can now go write a record that is 100% about himself and not about a character. You know, he doesn't have to hide behind a character. We know everything now. Unless he's 71 years old, you know. Well, <laughs> like, you know, what I care about. I felt like in Western Stars, he continued that conversation. And right. he said there was a point, right, that if I, if you cared about me, I was going to push you away. Right. You know, because that, that's good. Um, and it's got to be weird to be Bruce Springsteen. Like, yes. You know, that's not a normal existence to be right. Bruce Springsteen. It's like him, Michael Jordan, and Obama. Like, what, what do you, <laughs> anywhere in yes. the world that you go, like, you can't just like, go get a cheeseburger like you're always going to be bruce springsteen 
And I think as an artist whose job it is, is to discern the world and make sense of it for our entertainment, that's a hard notion, you know, that you can't belong to the world in that same way that you could when you were 24, 25, 26 years old, and you could really observe it. You almost have to take it from a character point of view because you don't get to have that, that human interaction. Yeah. You can't, you can't surprise a person. But like if Bruce Springsteen walked in my house right now, I would collapse. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Number one, I have a guard gate, so I don't know how he got in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, um, I have kept you along, and I, 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 I apologize, but I appreciate it so much. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? Oh gosh, I don't think so. Okay, you know, you know, I think the, I, I think my fandom though, um, and how it how it rolled into the, this character that I've written, this you know, and these books, the, in my new book, The Low Desert, that's coming out right after this show airs. Bruce, if you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, you will actually see the influence um, okay. in the stories that I tell and, and the books that I write, even when I'm writing about a you know, a fake Jewish hitman. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is a weird thing. It's a very weird thing. Uh-huh. Yes, the book is The Low Desert. Uh, when is it supposed to be out? It comes out February 2nd. Okay. And available where all fine books can be found? Yes, sir. Everywhere. That's, that is good. Okay. We want to happen that. Um, before I let you go, um, you've already talked about Jay Armstrong, but he is an honors English teacher. <laughs> Uh, every uh, got a lot year. of beef with the man. Got a lot yes. of beef. Oh man, we, we have to have a. Um, he does. Uh, he takes two days of his honors English class, and they break down Thunder Road, uh, talking about all the imagery and the uh, themes of the song, as if it was a poem, uh, comparing it to Robert Frost. And then at the end of the two days in class, he asks, "Does Mary get in the car?" So, Todd, that's your question. Does Mary get in the car? No woman is getting into a car with a man who says, you're just all right. Okay. (laughs) My wife would agree with that statement. (laughs) No woman is, like, you say that, like, duck, if you say that to a woman. (laughs) (laughs) No woman wants to be told, you ain't pretty, but you're all right. Like, no. You're you're not a beauty, but hey, you're all right. No, she doesn't get in the car. But also, in the history of of, um, of these characters uh, that we know in this world, these small town characters, she might get in the car, they might make it to the street, and then she's going to stop them, and she's going to get out, and she's going to walk back home. I like she's it. Not, she's a, he's a loser. Okay. He's not going to make it. She's got something else. She's going to find a rich oil man. Oh, I like that. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I just Thunder Road Two. The there we go. Is- Here you go. All right. Uh, if someone wants to reach you, how can they? You can find me anywhere by looking for my name, Todd Goldberg, at Todd Goldberg on Twitter, at Todd Goldberg on Facebook, ToddGoldberg.com. Well, only one D in Todd. However, my parents okay. didn't love me enough to give me two. Um, but you can find me everywhere, and of course, I also host uh, the podcast Literary Disco. Um, which is um, everywhere you get your podcasts and is part of uh, Lit Hub, which is a fantastic literary website that uh, has a full radio network of different shows. But we've been doing we've been doing literary disco for 
eight years nine years so we've got 200 episodes out there and, and what uh, is the premise it's uh talking about books we read a book we talk about it we play some games it's, you know we talk about life and culture and books and whatever weird thing happens to be happening and it's you know if you're a fan of um tv shows from the 90s uh former child actor writer strong is a co-host um, so sometimes you also get a little, oh, when I was on Boy Meets World, dot, dot, dot. And okay. that's always fun <laughs> to talk about. But it's uh, three people, me, Ryder, Julia Pistel. We all went to graduate school together. And uh, we've been having a continuing conversation about books the entire time. And so we decided at the dawn of the podcast era that people would be interested in what we have to say. And it turns out inexplicably <laughs> that they are. <laughs> I, I will have to check that out. That sounds good. Um, this has been a joy for me. I, I hope you've had fun. It's great. I could do it every night. Yeah, I guess we could. I, I, I don't think we'd run out of topics. <laughs> uh, thank you, Todd. I hope everyone goes and checks out the book and certainly check out the podcast. Listeners, you, please be safe. Uh, remember to social distance. Wash your hands. As Bruce says, wear an effing mask. Um, and let's all be good to each other because we certainly need it. But for now, we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter, at setlustingbruce, and my personal Twitter is at jessejacksondfw. We have a website, www.setlessingbruce.com. From there, you can find links to other Springsteen podcasts as well as other music-themed podcasts. We have a page devoted to our own SLB All-Star Band. These are guests who have been on the podcast more than three times. There is a link to our store where you can purchase Set Lessing Bruce shirts as well as a Mary Question t-shirt. There is a link to our Patreon page where you can sign up to help support the podcast financially. We have different levels and different rewards based on your support. If you don't have any extra cash, and right now who does, you can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listening Bruce. Set Listening Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. And there we go. That's the show. Perfect. That was yeah. great. Well, thanks. You were wonderful. Happy to do it anytime. Every time I have a new book, I'm coming back to talk about Bruce. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.